Well, we're in Luke chapter 3, and uh, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and the, the headline of his message to the people is that sins can be forgiven. Certainly, they can be uh, forgiven, but to obtain this forgiveness that is procured by Jesus, we need to repent. And the opening uh, section is all really about repentance, and we're on repentance again this morning. You might say, well, are we going to cover repentance again? Why are we doing it again? Well, it's there again in the passage, and uh, as long as it's there, we'll look to, uh, to cover it, just follow the Word of God and uh, bring out what is being said. And uh, this morning, we're in verses 10 to 14, and this gives us a picture of what true repentance, it's vital to have the right thing, easy to say I've repented, Easy to say, I believed. But as John the Baptist said to the crowd, you brood of vipers. Why are you coming to be baptized? Produce fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't start to say to me, we've got Abraham as our father. Don't start to say, I've been coming here for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, I think I've 80, I think I've covered it all possible it is now years and I've been baptized as a child or as an adult and uh, I'm a member, I'm a deacon, I'm an elder, I'm a pastor, assistant pastor, I'm a Sunday school. Don't begin to say things like that because it's Jesus, thy blood and righteousness that are my only hope, my only hope. On that great day, I hope I don't have to say, well, I won't be able to say I'm here because of what I've done. It's all because of what he has done. And that's what gives us that healthy healthy, respectful confidence on that great day. What does it look like? John the Baptist spoke in general terms as it being uh, fruit, produce fruit in keeping with uh, repentance. And it's it's a change of our disposition. I used to live for me. So in general, repentance is this. I lived for me. I do it my Way. Now I've, I've turned, my thinking's changed, my affections have changed, the direction of my life, so mind, heart and will have changed. I'm now focused on, on God. I, I still get it wrong, I still fail, but my disposition has, has radically changed from self and me and I to uh, him and God and, and his way. And it produces a fruit of humility and of, of love. They're the... Uh, the touchstone markers, generally speaking. We looked at this last Sunday also that uh, repentance is absolutely vital because there is a wrath to come. And the world, you see, we, we've got clear evidence to that. In Romans 1 and verse 18 tells us, and it's obvious and has been since the fall, the wrath, wrath of God is being, it's the present continual, revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. So, God's, there's still gracious judgments. This side of the final judgment, if things are going wrong in your life and in the world, the, God rattles your cage and says, hey, think, stop and think. That's a gracious thing. That's a kind thing. Oh, why, why isn't it just all plain sailing? Because you would never thought of eternity if it were. I'm all right. But no, he rattles our cages. He rattles the whole world. And I mean, how long have we got left? Uh, 
not, I'm not, not in the sermon now, it's about half an hour maybe, but to, I mean, uh, for, for this world. It's fast running out of its resources and the mess that's being made above the surface and, uh, and, and God giving indications, perhaps, that uh, it's urgent now, it, it's always urgent, but even more so as things gather pace. And global issues that are rattling the whole world and God is saying, look up, think, stop, repent and believe. There is a way out, there is a saviour from this world and its troubles and from the wrath to come. So I must repent. It's not a suggestion to you this morning, but it's a command from God, repent, repent. And it changes my whole life. And then this next section really bears down on the details. But before that, let me read from J.C. Ryle. Um, now, I, I just love reading anything by J.C. Ryle, former bishop of uh, Liverpool. I think he became bishop quite late in his life. And, uh, but he wrote so wonderfully, clearly, and spiritually, and heartily, and helpfully. But his expository thoughts on the Gospels... She's written thoughts on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you stood for what to do in your quiet times, the bookshop, I'm sure, has got the whole range of J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts. I, they're, they're like, well, they're like gold. I'm, so I read through them every now and again. And when I finished, I get disappointed, thinking I've got to leave it for a while now before I can come back to J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels. If you haven't read them, you, you're miss, you've missed a real treat. So do get to the bookshop. And uh, I'm sure they'll be there, and if not, Robin will get them to you very speedily. But he makes this comment, does J.C. Ryle, on this section. The fact that um, re true repentance brings evidence, evidence. It can never be impressed on our minds too strongly that religious talking and profession are utterly worthless without religious doing and practice. It is vain to say with our lips that we repent if we do not at the same time repent in our lives. It is more than vain. It will gradually sear our consciences and harden our hearts. To say that we are sorry for our sins is mere hypocrisy unless we show that we are really sorry for them by giving them up. Doing is the very essence of the life of repentance. Tell us not merely that a man, what a man says in religion, tell us rather what he does. If I have really been affected by the gospel, if Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the one triune God, left the glory of heaven and took a human body, didn't stop being God, and if he really, really now, if I really believe that happened, I mean, that's stunning, the incarnation. That God beyond all imagination. I mean, Wesley says, our God contracted to a span. Incomprehensibly made man. And why has he come? He's come to do us good. He's come to take away our sin. He lives a perfect life for us for 33 years. And then he goes to Calvary and suffers eternal hell for countless millions of people. Because he's done nothing wrong. Uh, death had to release him. See, death hangs on to sinners by right. When death looks at Jesus, he hasn't got a chance. 
So up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Now, if that is true, and if I've understood that, it's faith, I will repent. I will repent. I will. I will. I will. If it's real. If it's true. It's not what I say. It manifests then in what I do. This isn't contradicting it's not do in order to be. It's be in order to do. I've got to be right. I've seen the light. Jesus, his blood and his righteousness. And from that comes my doing. I do repent towards God. And my life changes. So this section, let me read the section, verses 10 through to 14. So the people asked him, that's John the Baptist, saying, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So three distinct groups here, listening to John the Baptist, have been stunned by what they'd heard and uh, the fiery, piercing preaching of John the Baptist about the wrath to come, about the axe at the root, not yet cutting through, but it's ready, and about the fire of judgment that is to come. They're stunned in their consciences, and especially when he calls them a brood of vipers and produce fruit. Well, what do you mean? What, what then should we, what should we do? And these three distinct groups. First of all, there's the crowds in general. Then he singles out two uh, areas who would be viewed with uh, great suspicion and disdain by the crowds, the, the tax collectors and the soldiers. But first of all, there are the crowds, the general body of ordinary people. And they come to him in verse 10 and they say to John the Baptist, what shall we do then? So, what shall we do? And John is very practical. Yeah, I love this. Uh, and, and preaching needs to be practical. You look at the letters that Paul wrote and the first half were very theological and great truths about God and Jesus and salvation. And, uh, and then we get a therefore and the rest of the letter is very practical. Applications, stop lying, stop stealing, uh, don't commit adultery, don't, they're, they're all very practical things. Husbands, love your wives and uh, wives submit to your own Husbands, as unto the all very practical details come out. And here it is from John the Baptist to the crowds in general. Very practical. Do you love God? Then you will love your neighbor as yourself. And he speaks about clothes and he speaks about food. He speaks about giving practical help to those who are in Need He who has two tunics, let him give to the one who has none. So some people there, yeah, the tunic. He's speaking about that garment that's worn close uh, to, to the skin. 
There was then an outer cloak, but this is the, the, the tunic. And uh, some had one, others would have two. Maybe they had three or, or four. You can see the, the, the need for that. And uh, if you've got two, though, you're down to your last two. Now, I don't have very much, but I, I have got two. And there's a guy, and he doesn't have any at all. Just an outer cloak, maybe, covering his modesty. Well, let the one who has two give to the one who has none. That's a big step. Because come the winter, I mean, think about this winter coming. I I I might want to wear two tunics just to give me that central heating that I don't have to light the fire or watch the kilowatts whirling round. And uh, that's a big thing. That's a big thing. Let him who has two give to the one who has none. I might need to, but one is better than none at all. And the same with, with food. If you see somebody and they, he has, what's repentance look like, the crowds, and what should we do? If you really love God, you'll love your neighbour. That'll be bowels of compassion, as God has shown compassion on you. It's invaded your heart. You can't be indifferent to the needs around about you. Within the church, outside of the church, practical help being given to those who are in need. Now, before my conversion, it was all about me, I and mine. No, I can't give because I might need it. It's gonna, we've got to be sensible, good stewards. That's what the Bible says. Now, my home is not... Do you live in a house? Whose house is it? So it's mine. It's not. I mean, the one I live in was built in 1590. Is it mine? Well, I'm a steward of it. I mean, it was built in 1590. If something goes wrong, I can't get the original builder in. I don't know how many families have lived there, but they've all passed on in succession. What a strange thing. What a ridiculous thing. What a stupid thing to say, mine, mine. You have to leave it. You have a car. Uh, yes, I have. Who's it? Mine. It's not yours. It's not, one day it's going to be a cube. <laughs> and, and you have to leave these things. Job had it right. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. What am I? I'm a steward of that house in St. Melons and a steward of the little car parked outside. And uh, It's in company's house, Jill, isn't it? Oh, well, maybe that's not be right. Okay, it's somewhere. And uh, we got two cars. We got two cars. Whose are they? Not, well, I'm a steward. See, somebody comes and says, I'm going to stop in your house because the Bible says so. Actually, no, I'm a steward of the house. Actually, at the moment, that's not practical, but uh, we've had a succession of folks over the years, certainly. But this is what it is. This is what it is. And the Bible's very radical. And the early church uh, showed the the complete change in their lives. Acts chapter 2. Think about the early church here. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's sharing things together. Acts chapter 4. And verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. 
Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now, I say, emphasize that they were stewards. They did have houses and fields and chariots and donkeys, and, uh, but no one, that's mine. God changes that. If you don't have God, that's all you've got. How sad for the world, it's all they've got. Nobody said that. Oh, the the power of the Spirit, the fresh glow of Pentecost, the reality of it all. When I lose the reality of Jesus Christ, the world becomes very, very real. So here it is. Nobody saying this is this is mine. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of things that were that were sold. And uh, the apostles distributing according to need. Now we have a lovely picture of that in the life of any local church. Here we are, stewards of our possessions, and then we have the offerings that. Uh, that are brought in and they're distributed. And some say, you know, is it right to have a large church? I think a large church can be a real blessing to many needs because there's a superfluity then of uh, goods coming in and we can see needs around various parts of the city and within the fellowship and, uh, and abroad and a, a bread, generous missionary committee. And uh, we need wisdom in these things. So... God changes a heart. There are many, many verses we could do there, but John becomes very, very practical. Let's move on. The time's moving on. The next group who come to him, and verse 12, are the tax collectors. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Now, the tax collectors. There were various levels of tax collectors. At the very top, were the tax farmers they were known as. And they had put in a bid to the Roman government to have the right to levy taxes in their locale. And uh, they'd make a bid to the government and uh, the highest bid would win the franchise. And so you had to be pretty wealthy to bid for a tax franchise from the Roman government. But once you had that tax franchise, you're the tax farmer. It's unlikely you did the work yourself. There'd be too much to do anyway. So you had men under you who were known as chief tax collectors. So it was subdivided. And uh, so here's the tax farmer, and he's paid a a load of shekels for his franchise. He wants to make sure he's making a profit. So he's going to make sure that the chief tax collectors are paying back to him more than he's got to pay to the Roman government. So the tax farmer wants his cut and he's going to be very very wealthy but then the chief tax collectors they know what they have to levy and uh, they're going to make a cut above that uh, as well and then below the chief tax collectors are the ordinary tax collectors who sit at the booths to raise the tax now a chief tax collector we're told to why I read Zacchaeus was a man like Zacchaeus so he was a very wealthy man as well as being a very little man And uh, someone like Matthew would have been an ordinary tax collector, probably still quite a young man, and making his way up in the system. That was the tax-collecting situation. Each one extorting 
and twisting and squeezing as much as he could from the people that they might feather their own nests all the way up the ladder. Two things about them. They were despised because they were seen as traitors. They were serving the Roman occupying forces and they were extortionists. They were rich and they were despised. But under the preaching, see the power of the gospel, they are stung into action, conscious stricken. What shall we do? And John the Baptist is very practical in his response. Notice he doesn't say stop being a tax collector. You know, taxes were necessary. Roads had to be built. Government had to function. And you and I must pay our taxes. Uh, we should do it efficiently, uh, but we ought to pay what is required. And the Lord doesn't, doesn't say to any tax collector, stop being a tax collector. He says, just be fair. Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Be fair. It's what happens with Zacchaeus, of course. I wonder, I wonder, See, Jericho's not far from the Jordan Valley. Had Zacchaeus been in the crowd listening to the preaching of John the Baptist? And uh, John the Baptist is saying, there's one to come who is greater than I, whose uh, sandals I'm not unworthy to untie. He, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, and then maybe Zacchaeus went back to Jericho and then he hears a little while later, there's a crowd, there's a commotion and uh, he wants to see. It's Jesus. He says, no, what? And, but he's a small man and up the sycamore fig tree and uh, Jesus stopping. And come down. Make haste. And he made haste. And if I say to you, repent, believe, do it now. I said it at the start, I say it again. With all my heart I say it to you. Do it now. Are you not saved? Why ever not? Do you not see? The danger you're in. I can say it. Doesn't have much effect. But when Jesus says it, have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? Zacchaeus did. And he hurried down. I'm coming to your house for tea. And he invites all his friends, does Zacchaeus, and maybe other tax collectors. What an opportunity. You know, once you're saved, invite your friends, get them round. And what a transformation in Zacchaeus. Maybe he had been stung under the preaching of John the Baptist because, uh, yeah, he makes a bold, if I've, I give half of my goods to the poor. I've got plenty, I can see the needs. Of, and what needs there would have been then? And what needs there are now? Give, give half straight away. And if I have extorted people, I'm going to repay them four times. Maybe put a, an advert in the uh, Jericho Journal. And uh, come, I'll be around at my booth. But, uh, this, uh, this time I'm, I'm giving rebates. I'm not taking it in. What's happened? Oh, I'll tell you what's happened to Zacchaeus. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into Oh, oh, oh floods of joy on my soul like this. I can hardly contain myself. Something seems to have happened to him. And it's not only words, 
It's not only a fixed grin, but it's very practical. What about me? Does the, does the gospel cut when I tell it to people? Have I got the joy down in my heart? Am I practically helpful to those who are around and about me? Am I using the home where I'm a steward and the car and, uh, and the goods to, to help those around about who are in need? And I, I, whatever I have, you hold it on an open palm. What a difference. Be fair, he says, to the tax collectors. And then finally, it's the soldiers, agents of Rome. Now, the world was uh, under the influence of something really quite um, helpful at the time, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that enabled, actually, what a providence from God, the Apostle Paul to travel freely and a common currency across Europe. Want to get political? But uh, free borders, then free movement of people and a common currency. And so when Paul wanted to go to Spain, he's making his plans, he, he could do that and he could pay his way. And oh, how the gospel was able to spread. But it was overseen by the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and it was. Uh, Enforced by Roman soldiers. And the, how do you think the tax collectors were able to get their money? Because when Matthew was sat at his tax collecting booth, how much is it, Matthew, this week? Well, it's, it's three shekels. Oh! And uh, there's a Roman soldier each side. Three, you say, Matthew? Okay. Thank you. Well, they're Romans. And the soldiers... Now, whether they were Jewish soldiers or Roman soldiers, they, they were soldiers, and commentators will, will divide on that. But they were soldiers, and they were keeping the, the peace. But um, more than that, because of their position of power and the fear that they invoked in, in the people, they were subject to, to, they would take bribes. I'll do this if you cross my palm with silver, extortion, give me this or else, uh, coercion, carry my load. So the Roman soldier and all his equipment, well, it's heavy stuff. So he gets some, uh, some other guy to carry this for me. And they could, of course, uh, coerce them to carry for a mile, but no further. Jesus says, well, if someone does that to you, you go the extra mile. All right, your mile's up. Oh, it doesn't matter. Septimus, I'll carry a further mile. What? What? What is this? Oh, Something's happened to me. You might have heard about him. Jesus. And he's invaded my heart. There seems to be a new strength in my body. Let me tell you about him as we go the second mile. See, the first mile, that's what he had to do. But the second mile? Now the soldiers... Well, go on then. Go on. There's nobody else around. Tell me about this Jesus who you've met. What a... Oh, has that happened to you? What an opportunity. When we go the extra mile... When we turn the other cheek, if I go for revenge, oh, am I different to anybody else? So they, these are the soldiers. And they come to Jesus and they say, now it's very emphatic now with the soldiers. Uh, the other crowd, groups have said, what and what shall we do? But the Greek here is very emphatic because the soldiers say, not only 
and what shall we do? But the original, I checked it again this morning, and we, what shall we do? We, we, what, what shall we? They're very concerned. Well, what about us? We're in a real mess. And uh, again, he doesn't say stop being soldiers. He tells them to be fair and to be kind. Don't abuse your position of power. And then be content with your wages. And that's not a charter for employers to oppress their employees. And it's not against workers' rights. Again, it's a hard attitude. When you get a pay rise, that's, that's good. And uh, if you've got in a union, there's bargaining rights, then that's fair and it's lawful. And you make your employer a request and he says no. And under the law, you could withdraw your labor for a while and then he'd come back and then he, that's called negotiation. Ah, the Bible's not against that. It's not saying be content with your wages, never seek a pay rise. Of course, it's not saying that. It's saying don't make that your life. If you didn't get a pay rise, I'd have the Lord any, anyway. And uh, yeah. I mean, if we were still getting what we had in the 1920s, then I don't think uh, two shillings a week would quite last very long. No, wages do go up. But uh, that's in its context. Be content with your wages. So that's the three groups of people. Now, as we come to a conclusion, what about us? What about me? What about you? How does true repentance, what about me, I, we, what shall we do? And uh, the Lord would say, well, now break now from your besetting sin. Yeah. Break now from your besetting sin. And the Bible speaks about sins generally. And why do I do things wrong? Because I am wrong. I sin because I'm a sinner. But in Jesus Christ the disposition's been changed, and I want to please the Lord. But this side of glory, the expression of the old man hangs around the world, the flesh, the devil. I'm in a battle. I don't succumb. There is power from God, new desire in my heart, and I, I must change. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought. Break from your besetting sin. Now, some people's sins are obvious. Others are hidden, some sadly are what we call respectable sins today. Some obvious sins. Those who are converted from maybe an alcoholic background, drug abuse and, uh, and gambling and, and violence. And that's pretty upfront and obvious. And uh, maybe a, you've been a womanizer. Then you might be sitting there saying, well, that's certainly not me. Well, no, maybe your sins are, and for the majority of us, they will be more hidden. So you're, you know where to go on the internet. You know which channels to watch on the television late at night when others aren't around. You've got the remote control ready just in case somebody might, might come in. And uh, our thought life and envy and pride. And they're more hidden than the womanizer, the alcoholic, the drug abuser, and the violent pugilist. But uh, it's still sin. It's sin. And then there are those we would call respectable sins. Greed. Amassing for self-indulgence. And so Jesus, through the word, would say to us, what should you do? Stop it. Break from that. Womanizer, be faithful to your wife. Mean miser, 
Stop it. Be generous to others. See what a difference that would make. Liar. You know him to be economical with the truth and speak the truth. Glutton. Eat healthily. Drinker. Be sober. Drug abuser. Stop. Stop. Gambler. Be content and work hard. Hot-headed person. Calm down. Calm down. Be patient. Idler. Work. True repentance. True repentance. Truly changes a life. How does it happen? Well, we're not doing Malachi tonight. We're going to carry on because there's some tricky bits to sort out in, in Malachi. And I want to leave it till after the, the summer. So we're moving on in the next section of, of Luke. And uh, we're told how it's possible to live this life divine because one is coming, says John the Baptist. I baptize you with water. But there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You won't only be told to do certain things, as you are being told to do certain things this morning, but you'll be given power. Power divine. What power is this? Oh, it's power. From the very origins of the depths of forever past. It's the power of God. And he does to you the power in part to live the life divine. He doesn't just say do and leave you to it. He gives you the power. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Oh, what does repentance look like? It's very practical. It's life-changing. Has it happened to you? It's new life. Keep it new. Christian, keep it new. Keep it real. Keep it fresh. Keep it relevant. Be on point. Always on duty. Are you not yet saved? Let me urge you again. It's a gospel command. Now, Look, if it's happened to you where you are sitting, it's a miracle when it does. It happened to me over 40 years ago, sitting in the middle of a congregation. Uh, there's a big appeal made at the end, and I, I walked forward. Now, we won't make an appeal. Looking at the elder, no, we're not going to make an appeal. But if something's happened to you where you are sitting, do, do, let, do let us know. Do let us know that you have this new life. And we want to help you as your older brothers and sisters to... To walk because a newborn baby, you're going to fall over quite a bit. But, uh, but we want to help. We're a, we're a family here. So have you been saved this morning? If not, why not, I would say. If you have, then come, come and... Something's happened to me. And uh, we, can, we can talk about these wonderful things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in our hearts. Thank you for the gospel. It's nothing we deserve. It's all of your grace. Pray, Lord, as your people, we would show what it means to be a forgiven sinner and point others to the Savior. For any here who are not yet saved, pray they might trust the Savior even now, we pray. To God be the glory. Amen. We'll finish with another well-known hymn. Sinners, Jesus will receive. Tell this word of grace to all who the heavenly pathway leave. All who linger, all who fall, this can bring them back again. Christ receives sinful men.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.